Today's message is going to be part two in a series called Distracted, and the message itself is titled The Pale Moonlight. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, verse number 16. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and he made the stars also. Genesis chapter 1 and 16. Real, real quickly, I just want to teach you a little bit about hermeneutics and symbolism in the Word of God. Hermeneutics is a fancy a theological term that basically boils down to uh, to symbolism and um, all the metaphors and similes that appear in the Word of God that uh, while they are literally happening, they also represent other things, especially tying old and new together, scriptures together, uh, and digging a little bit deeper. So um, this one I think will make a lot of sense and will be easy to understand. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 16, we see the portion of the Word of God where He has created a greater light to rule the day, a lesser light to rule the night, and the stars also. So what is the greater light? The sun. What is the lesser light? The moon, right? So we know that. Uh, when it comes to the word of God, the sun and the moon have certain representations. Representations. Uh, the sun always represents God because it is a self-sustaining light source. Okay, now represents is important because some people got this mixed up in the Old Testament and decided it might be a good idea to worship the sun and that does not, that no longer is a representation of God that becomes God, and that is not okay. And God was never okay with that. Now, as the sun represents God, uh, the moon represents believers, because the moon is the lesser light, the sun to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. Uh, we were created on the sixth day, and that's symbolic that we were created for the seventh day, that we have the night of the sixth day to rule, the day of the seventh day, which is called His return in the New Testament, to worship and to be with Him. So, we were created... To rule the light or to rule the dark, so to speak, a light in a dark place we are supposed to be. But we have no light of our own. The only way that we can provide light is if we reflect the light of the sun, which is the same thing the moon does. In Genesis chapter 37, Jacob has a dream. In his dream, he sees the sun and the moon and 11 stars, which represent his brothers and uh, his brothers. And they all bow down to him. And, um, and it's a symbolic that God is raising him up to be the leader of all of them. But in his vision, uh, the son represents his father. The Bible declares, you can read in Genesis 37. And the moon represents his mom or the bride of the son. So the moon represents the bride. And in the word of God, we are called the bride of Christ. And the stars represent his father's children, a.k.a. his brothers. And we are also called children of God as well as his bride. So the moon and all the stars represent believers, and the sun represents God. Does that make sense to everyone? Uh, so when I say the pale moonlight, as the title of the sermon, uh, the moonlight represents your light. You are the moon. And unfortunately, sometimes our light is paler than at other times. I'm going to read this to you. This is something I really feel like the Lord gave me for this sermon today. You are truly brilliant. Truly brilliant. You're represented by the moon. You reflect the light of the sun. You need to know that. Christy, you're brilliant. That's coming from God. Ryan, you are brilliant. Alex, you are brilliant. Chris, you are brilliant. Everybody in the room, 
You are brilliant. Maybe not brilliant in science or math, so nobody's ever going to confuse you with Newton or Einstein. Maybe not a brilliant storyteller or linguist, so you'll never be Tolkien or Twain. Maybe not a brilliant athlete, so nobody's ever going to hand you an MVP trophy. Maybe you're not even brilliant at whatever it is that you do. So maybe you will never be known as or spoken of as a genius in your field. And while genius and brilliant are interchangeable words, they are not the same word. Your brilliance, God says, is your radiance. Your radiance is your energy, as we call it modern day. But your energy is simply your spirit. And your spirit shines through in your countenance. And God wants you to understand this morning, young woman, young man, old woman, old man, you are brilliant. You truly are. You have no choice because you are made in his likeness and you are made in his image and he shines as brightly as the sun. And when you stand in his presence and you reflect that glory, you are truly brilliant. You are. The most brilliant among us are those whose spirits have been awakened. Those who are in fellowship with the spirit. Let your light shine. Be brilliant. Be you. God, the Bible says, has fearfully and wonderfully made you. The same as he did the moon. But just as the moon waxes and wanes and draws closer and further away from the sun and the earth. Sometimes the moonlight is brighter than at other times. But scientifically speaking, that's not true in the heavens, if you will, in outer space, because the the light of the sun doesn't wax or wane and the surface of the moon doesn't change so much that it literally reflects a different shade of light. It's always the same. But the reason that it appears sometimes a bit paler is because of the distractions, if you will, around it. The clouds that it's trying to pierce through. The pollution sometimes in the air. Obviously, trees can block it. Other things can block it. It never truly lessens in its brilliance, but sometimes it's a little bit harder to see. It can't shine all the way through. The pale moonlight represents me and you. So I have a question for you this morning. Very simple, very challenging question. Who are you? Who are you really? So we live in an age of social networking and and connectivity that we are so connected all the time, no matter how connected we want to be, yet we are painfully disconnected from our identity in Christ and who we are in God. And so the question this morning is, who are you? Not who your Facebook status says you are. Not the avatar. Not the Twitter feed. Not that person that you're projecting yourself to be out in the the atmosphere of the internet. Or wherever it is that people see you. But who are you really? Who are you? If somebody asked you, Jacob, who are you? What would you say? Eli, who are you? I'm a musician. Sort of. 
That's something that you do if you're Eli. Alex, who are you? If I got Alex to come up here and tell us who he was, he might give us a rundown of all of the best sci-fi and superhero movies that were ever made (laughs) since movies started. And if you know Alex, that's a part of who Alex is. But that's not Alex. That's something that you like. Think about you. I'm asking you, Chris Lee, who are you? It's a tough question. Who are you? If you don't know who you are, you cannot shine with that pure and radiant brilliance that God has for you. Because your spirit is confused. The spirit within you is confused. From one day to the next, you don't know who you are. You'll define yourself by the things that you like and the things that you do. But if you were just out in the middle of nowhere in a wooden hut with no television, no computer, no Facebook, uh, no smartphone, no distractions, nothing like that. And you had to sit down and you had to contemplate within your own self. Who am I? What would the answer be? Because John can't be a musician if he's stuck out somewhere without a guitar. He could sing songs and I hope that he would. And maybe you do the same to pass time, but there's certain ways that we think of ourselves, but it's hard to really get down to the nitty gritty and figure out who we, who we really are. We live in what I'm calling the tombs of technology, an earbud enhanced passive aggressive alternate reality, both more private and more public than it's ever been. It's such a simple question and it's so hard to answer. Who are you? Who are you really? If you cannot confidently answer that question, you can't be who the person next to you needs you to be. If you're having problems in your marriage, maybe you should ask yourself that question. Who am I? I've had counselors and psychologists tell me and my wife agree Uh, more than a couple of times using different terms. But the one that made the both the most sense is that I have a a mirroring personality. Like I'm heavy on the uh, mirror neurons, if you will. In other words, if I hang out with you for long enough, I can get along with you because I start to become like you and I can reflect your own personality back to you and we can get along and we can hang out really well. We can do things. Uh, if whatever sports you like, I might not like them right now, but if I hang out with you for a little while, I'll end up liking them. I'll be that guy. We'll go do what you like to do. John, uh, you may not know this about John. I may, I may not supposed to be revealing this about John, uh, but John is a very gifted cake maker. If I hung out with John for long enough, I'd help him out with that. I'd eventually become a pretty decent cake maker. That's what I do. <laughs> I, re- I reflect stuff. I don't know. I mean, I've, I've done it since I was young. When I was a kid, I used to play uh, baseball, t-ball, and I remember a guy named Eddie Perez because Eddie Perez had like the most amazing accent ever. He was a Mexican-American kid, but I mean, when we were like 10 years old, his voice was already deeper than than mine is now or, or most men that you know, and he had this raspy Mexican accent, and it was so crazy and so awesome. Everybody loved it, and I would find myself talking in that accent without trying to. I got so deep into it that I couldn't talk normal because I mirrored because I thought it was so cool. I didn't mean to. 
But I've kind of always had that thing, and that kind of makes it difficult sometimes because I had a lot of different groups of friends in high school, for instance. Uh, I had preppy friends because to the preppy people, I was preppy. I had athletic friends because to the jocks, I was like a jock. One of my best friends was in the band, which in our school, you couldn't get further away from jock and prep than the band. So, but I had friends, and my best friend was in the band, one of my best friends growing up, who ended up being the valedictorian. And I could hang out with him and his band friends too, because to them I was like a band guy, I just didn't know how to play anything. <laughs> and a lot, a lot, they didn't play anything a lot of times either, just hung out and did it, whatever. I had, it, and I, but I had a real hard time figuring out who am I, really. I had all these other influences and all these other voices and all these other people I would end up being like, but who am I? I'll tell you who I never hung out with and what I never thought would really happen. I never hung out with pastors or pastor's kids. I didn't hang out with Christians that much. Maybe that's why I had a real hard time figuring out who I was. Now, my mom and my dad, I don't know how they figured this out. But from the time as far back as I can remember, I mean, it had to be at least starting at seven, eight years old. They would introduce me like you do your kids to your friends or whatever. This is my son, Thad. Uh, my daughter, Courtney, um, Andrew was a little baby at the time. And they would say, they would be talking inevitably at some point in the conversation, they'd say, yeah, if that had better parents, he'd grow up to be a preacher. And I was always like, why do you say that? What is that? I don't understand that at all. Cause I didn't, I definitely didn't preach or write sermons. I had, they had no reason to really say that, but they obviously saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And it took me a long time to figure out a little bit about who I was. Mark chapter 5, verse number 1, says, They came over to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. When he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Remember the tombs of technology, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not without chains, or not with chains even. Because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always night and day, he was in the mountains and the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when Jesus, from afar off, when he saw Jesus, he ran and worshipped him and cried with a loud voice and said, What do I have to do with you, son, uh, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? I adjure thee by God that you torment me not. For he said unto him, Jesus said, Come out of the man, talking to the unclean spirit. In verse number nine, the spirit asked, I'm sorry, Jesus asked, What is your name? And he answered and said, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send him away out of the country. We're going to skip down to verse number 14. And they that fed the swine, this is after he sent the spirits into the flock of swine, told the city and the country, and they went out to see what was done. They came to Jesus, Jesus in verse number 15, and they saw him that was formerly possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Such an interesting little portion of scripture such an interesting story see we are so far advanced as a society now that sometimes we read stories like that people being possessed by demons and running around in graveyards and cutting themselves and it's kind of laughably half fiction nonfiction. we're not sure what to believe about it we don't we don't ever really have to deal with it because of our advancements in the medical field and bioengineering and chemistry and all the different things uh, we don't we don't necessarily uh, have one-on-one -on -one interactions with the depth of evil and understand uh, the power of it as being more than the sum of its little parts that we deal with. So we read stories like this, and we cannot really relate. But if you think about it, at the end of the day, 
There's never been another time period on the face of the earth that is more relatable to a story like this than right now. Because you may not be running around in physical graveyards cutting yourself. But if Jesus showed up in the midst of wherever you are right now and asked you this real simple question, Adriel, who are you? God, you might start going down a list of just really trying to figure it out. Don, who are you? Well, I'm a husband and I'm a father and I'm Sam's father and I'm Don's father and I'm Amanda's father and I'm a I'm a father in law and I'm a uh, and I adopt children and I'm a, a minister and I'm an outreach guy and and I, I, I work on wood floors and I play softball and uh, my wife cooks really well and I like to eat all of it and it's all good. And that and that's what I and that's what I do. And that's who I am. And in other words, Jesus would walk up to you and say, what is your name or who are you? And you, you have to say, we are many. The list is long. I'm this guy and that guy and the other guy and, and the other guy and this dude over here. And I do this and I do that. And Jesus Christ is going, no, I'm not. I'm not looking for all that. I just want to know who are you? See, when Nicole married Don, she didn't marry a husband that was manufactured in a factory somewhere and labeled husband. She married Don Gardner. Don Gardner already existed before he became a husband. Don Gardner already existed before he became a father. Don Gardner existed before he started playing softball, before he started working on wood floors. And Jesus wants to walk up to you and he wants to know my son, my daughter, who are you? Do you even know? Do you have any idea? It's so easy to walk through this life and not have to think about it. Because you wake up in the morning and you wake up with a list. Whether you physically written it down or not, you got things to do. You got people to see. You got to get into work. You got to get the plumbing fixed. You got to get the, the grass mowed. Uh, you got to get the kids fed. You got to get the TV show on. You got to catch the NBA finals. You got to go. You got to eat at least three times, four or five if you're lucky. You've got friends that, you, that need your help. You've got people. And you can go through a whole lifetime and never take a real moment to sit down and focus on who you are. And if Jesus walked into your life and said, who are you, you might not have a good answer. You might have to say, we are many. It's so interesting right here. If you read verse 15 closely, you're talking about a guy. And then think about our society, a guy that ran around in just mass chaos all over this town. He was breaking chains. He was busting fetters. He was throwing rocks. He was screaming and cutting himself. He was tortured. He was crazy, but that didn't scare anybody. They got used to it. They were all right with the craziness. They were all right with the chaos. They let that become part of their daily routine and who they are. And I want to suggest that maybe you're in the same place. Maybe there's too much going on around you. Maybe the chaos is overwhelming, but instead of taking a step back, and realizing that some of this chaos needs to go away, you've embraced it and decided that this chaos is who I am. But I want to ask you again, very simply, who are you really? Who are you really? God has a calling for you. God has a plan for you. Amen. From the day you were born until the day you turned 70, you have 26,000 days to figure it out. God didn't create 
mankind and didn't allow you to come onto this earth with such a short period of time to just live in, in chaos and confusion, and never figure out who you are. You have a short period of time in which you can affect the world or you can let the world affect you. So they came and Jesus, he cast out this devil. He sent a pack of swine into the ocean that didn't scare them either. They were like, whatever, it's 2013. Pigs are swimming. It's all good. We're not going to let that bother us. Then they came over to Jesus. They saw him that was possessed with the devil. No big deal. They see him all the time. But he was sitting. He was clothed. And he was in his right mind. And then they were afraid. Then they got a little bit scared. Because there is nothing more daunting and there is nothing in, in our society right now that stands out and issues a challenge to all of mankind than coming upon somebody who is totally sane and peaceful. That scares folks. They're all right when you're crazy because they can look at you and they can say, well, that gives me a good excuse for my craziness too. Oh, you're having the same problems I'm having. That makes me feel better. Oh, this is going on or that is going on or you're caught up in the craziness. You need prayer. I need prayer. Everything's good. You're not hearing from God either. Oh, thank God. Because I'm not hearing. But when you come upon somebody who is at peace, somebody who has conquered the chaos, somebody who has rejected the craziness, somebody who has taken a moment to find out who they are and become secure in that, it can be scary because then that's a challenge to you. If they can do it, why aren't you doing it? So instead, we like to surround ourselves with people who are just as chaotic as we are. But inside that chaos, I'm telling you, Jesus Christ is screaming out a challenge, a question to you right now. My son, my daughter, who are you? Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. And this is a big first step. We're going to be in verse number 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples and he said, Who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Step number one. How many of you want to know who you are? How many of you want to know who you're called to be? How many of you want to know about the greatness that is in you? How many of you want to see the brilliance that God has put inside of you? How many of you want to shine with the radiant glow of the fullness of God's spirit? Amen. I'm telling you right now, some of you are in a place that you should not be. Some of you are in a place that God didn't call you to be. Some of you are only halfway there when you should be all the way there, or at least you could be all the way there. God is not condemning you, but God wants to encourage you. I have called you son. I have called you daughter. A son and a daughter of the king have the full authority of the king. And in this land, God has called you to be brilliant. And you are a little bit dull Amen. because you don't yet know who you are. Amen. First, you have to answer this question. Jesus said, who do men say I am? And they said, some say that you are John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to him, his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto you, but my father, which is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The first thing you have to be able to do, my friend, if you want to figure out who you are, is you must answer the question for yourself who he is. Amen. Now, that sounds easy. And some of you even think that you've done it. But have you actually done it? 
To truly know the answer to that question, you must be one of his disciples. You notice he didn't go out on the street with Jay Leno's camera crew, man on the street in New York. Hey, 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 I'm Jesus. Who do men say I am? And laughing, he didn't do that. He went to his disciples. They're the only ones that could possibly know. The only ones that can get it right. God's not asking you to walk up to your non-believing friends and ask them who Jesus is. They don't know. And they don't care. And that question's not going to help them. That question's for you. Who do men say that he is, first of all? Then he says, who do you say that I am? And some of you in this room, you say that he is the son of God, but the only time he ever hears from you is Sunday morning, Wednesday night, and not even all of those. So on one hand, you've stepped up to the plate and said, Jesus Christ is the son of God. On the other hand, God is in heaven going, do you understand what it means if you recognize that I'm God? That means I am everything. I am the beginning and the end. I am the alpha and the omega. I am the lion and the lamb. I am your healer. I am your salvation. I am your Messiah. I am everything. I am over everything. I rule everything. And you're saying that you know that this is my son, but I cannot get you to show up to my throne on a daily basis. How is Jesus, the son of God in your heart? And you are not even thinking about him on Monday. (coughs) He hasn't heard from you on Tuesday. He can't shake you out of bed on Wednesday. You've forgotten almost about everything by Thursday. He's not in the club with you on Friday. He didn't stay the night over there on Saturday. And he's hoping that he'll see you again on Sunday. Who do you say that I am? And when you really get it, then he'll turn around and tell you who you are. He says, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Step one, you've got to be able to, to define and tell yourself and come to terms with who he is. If he's only Jesus Christ, the son of God, once or twice a week, then he's not the son of God at all. Not not truly in your heart. Step one shows you how you define him and that when you can define him, he will define you. However, we do not have the luxury of Jesus Christ physically showing up at our doorstep the way that he did to Peter and saying, you are Peter, son of God. So the next thing we need to figure out is how do we hear from God? How do we hear from God? Where do we hear from God? How are we going to discern who he's called us to be? First Kings chapter 19. And God said, go forth and stand upon the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and broke in pieces the rock before the Lord. A strong wind passed by so strong And so violent that it broke the mountains. Remember, Jesus said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you could speak to that mountain and it'd be cast into the ocean. And so that's one of our charismatic things. Brother, Jesus said, if you just had faith like a mustard seed, 
You could speak to that mountain. You could speak to that tree. Glory to God. And it'll be cast into the ocean. And everybody says, oh, praise God. Praise God. But nobody walks outside the building and starts talking to mountains. Because even though they're amen in the preacher, they all know that's not what he meant. And they're not sure exactly what he did mean, but it is a very charismatic scripture. So we'll amen it. We'll throw our hands up and we'll never, ever use it or benefit from it. It's something that God does. He passed by a great and strong wind, rent the mountains. Man, the glory of God, the wind of God, the Holy Spirit broke it in pieces That's amazing. That must be where God is. But the next scripture says, but the Lord was not in the wind. That's not it. That's not the place. The Lord passed by and that happened. Like Peter, when he walked into the temple and his shadow passed by a guy and he got healed. Peter wasn't God. But the spirit of God passed by and things happened. Mountains broke down, but we get in our charismatic giddy up, man. And there's God Boy, the mountains are moving. God is here. He's speaking to us. No, he's just passing by. Hoping you'll notice. The Lord was not in the wind. And the scripture says after the wind, there was an earthquake. He started really shaking things up. We really got charismatic. Then the building started shaking. The roof is coming off. Everybody's falling down and passing out. There's an earthquake and my God, he is speaking to us. Things in our lives are shifting around. The whole world is shaking and baking. Everything's getting crazy. People are swinging on chandeliers. The whole earth is going crazy. The church is going crazy and God is speaking to you. But this says, hold on a second. After the wind and earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Well, that's no good. Here he comes. He was messing with us. Little wind, little earthquake, getting us all excited. Then we figure out, okay, he's not in the wind or the earthquake. Little hide-and-go-seek game going on. What's he going to do? And then you look up and the fire falls. Praise God. The fire falls. After the earthquake, a fire. He said, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. He's burning things up out of your life. He's burning away sin. He's lighting you up. The altar is lit up. The prayers are going up. The incense are going up. The temple is really moving now. The service is on. And the preacher's saying, oh my God, I thought he was in the wind. I thought he was in the earthquake. But he wasn't in the wind or the earthquake. He's in the fire. (laughs) Verse number 12, after the earthquake of fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Uh, I don't know what to do. We got the wind, the earthquake, the fire. I just want to sit. Give me, I'll sit over here. All right, guys. No wind, no earthquake, no fire. Let's just uh, have three points that start with P and then we'll get out of here. Provision, purpose, and punctuality. Fill in the blanks. Teach you a sermon. We'll all feel good. And we'll go eat and then we'll have a committee meeting or something. God will probably be in the committee meeting. Now they think about it. That hurt. No earthquake, no wind, no fire. So where is he? And after the fire, a still small voice. And that's it. The Lord passed by and he's all about it. He's miraculous. He's charismatic. He's powerful. He's a miracle worker. He'll shake the mountains up. 
He'll tear them down with the wind of the Holy Ghost. He'll quake the earth around you a little bit. He'll tear things up. He'll swallow things up. He'll change landscapes. He'll do some topography work in your life. He'll do that. He'll send down the fire. He'll burn things out. He'll do all those things. But the minute that you inadvertently start worshiping those things and those movements and those miracles and feel like God is speaking to you because you saw wind and earthquake and fire and his voice was in it. And inside that charismatic moment, God has spoken to you and shown you exactly what you have to do. God is in the background going, I'm glad I got your attention, but I got your attention for the purpose so that I could speak to you. Not so that you could worship the things that I do, but worship the God that I am. And I have a still, small, quiet, peaceful, little voice that I just, I just, I just tenderly want to touch your heart with it. If you'll get away from all of the other craziness, I do have something to speak to you, my son, my daughter. And it's not about mountains and it's not about earthquakes and it's not about fire. Simply put, in the still small voice of the spirit, God is just trying to speak to you and tell you, my son, my daughter, I love you. I've called you. I called you before there was time. You were Chris Lee before you were even in your mother's womb. And I knew what that meant. Those that I have foreknown, I have predestined. Those that I have predestined, I've justified. And I will glorify. And he will do these things in your life. He knew who you were. He knew who you would be. He knew the choices that you would make. And in the smallness of his voice, he wants to remind you that you are a son and a daughter of the Most High God. You like music? That's excellent because he put that in you. You like what you do? That's excellent because he put that in you. You like Star Trek? I can't blame that one on God. That's all you. (laughs) Star Wars, maybe. Star Trek, not so much. Um, I'm just kidding. The things that you like that are godly, that are beneficial, the gifts and the talents that you have, those things are great, but those things do not define you. When somebody walks up to you, when you want to look in the mirror and you want to know who am I, you are part of the body of Christ. You are a son. You are a daughter of the Most High King. Don't ever forget that. There's 10,000 voices out there trying to tell you who you're supposed to be. It's in the magazines. It's on the radio. It's on the television. It's on the silver screen. It's on your friend's Facebook pages. It's out there in the Twitterverse. It's everywhere telling you who you're supposed to be or who people think you are. And when it all gets too chaotic, you need to take a step back and remind yourself who he is so that he can remind you who you are and you can walk in your purpose and in your calling. Exodus chapter six, verse number nine. This is in the midst of Moses trying to rally the children of Israel up and out of their complacency. Moses spake unto the children. He's got all these promises, everything that God's going to do. Everybody say, that's me. Okay, God wants to speak to you. He wants to deliver you. Everybody say, that's me. He's got promises for you. He's got a future for you. He's got plans for you. Everybody say, that's me. All in the, and these, these particular people had been crying and asking God for this for hundreds of years. And then Moses walks in and he says, God has heard your cry and God is going to do this thing. And God is going to deliver you. And the children of Israel, it says in verse number nine, Moses spake so unto the children of Israel, but they hearkened not to Moses for anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. In other words, let me put it to you like this. You are made out of, thank you, you are a triune being, you have three parts. 
Okay, 1 Thessalonians reminds us of that. We have body, soul, and spirit. Real quickly, let me tell you how that works. Your body is your flesh and blood. Your soul is your mind, will, and emotions. And your spirit is your heart, how it's affected your spirit, God's spirit that's in you. Your spirit is what lives forever. Your soul lives forever with your spirit, but they are two separate things. What will not live forever is your flesh and blood. So let me show you how this works. Paul said, there is daily a war within my own members. The war, my friend, is over your soul. You understand? The war is over your soul. The devil wants your soul and God wants your soul, both for eternity. The devil's vehicle to win that battle is flesh and blood. That's what he tries to tempt. That's what he tries to affect. If he can get you to follow your own flesh and blood appetites, he can, he can secure your soul in hell with him because you have no fellowship with God. God's avenue or vehicle to bring your soul to eternal heaven with him is his spirit. Okay, so the spirit leads you towards godliness and your flesh and blood leads you towards ungodliness. Your soul is caught in the middle. Does that make sense? When Moses showed up to the children of Israel, he had a spiritual renewal that traveled with him. He had spiritual promises. He had deliverance. And they wanted it so bad. But they could not hear him. And they could not hearken to him. Because the Bible says their spirit was in anguish. If you're not following the spirit, you are naturally following the flesh and blood. So they were out there working the land. They were out there in slavery. Everybody say, that's me. Slavery, bondage to sin. That's what we deal with on a daily basis. And they couldn't hear Moses and they couldn't accept the promises because their spirit was downtrodden. Their spirit had been trampled on. So let me help you this morning. Your spirit is renewed day by day through the reading of the word, through prayer and through fasting. And the Bible says, do not forsake the assemblings together of yourself for iron sharpens iron. You must be with like minded brothers and sisters. So obviously church is a great place to get a lot of both the word and prayer, as well as that anointing that comes in, in unified worship. The Bible makes that clear. So I want to encourage you, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, each and every day, you need to get into that word. Each and every day, you need to be praying. If you are going to come to myself, my wife, any of our leadership team, anybody in your life, and you need somebody to talk to about your problems, and that person does not ask you about your diligence in reading and praying, then not only are you not being set up for success, but you are in a, in a small way wasting somebody's time and efforts because you as a Christian cannot expect to get better if you won't go take the medicine that he prescribed to you. If you won't get in the word, I cannot talk you into a better situation. If you won't get into prayer, I cannot conjure up some magical place for you to live where everything's going to be okay. And neither can anybody else. Step one, read. Step 1.5, pray. And if things are still not getting better, counsel. Godliness is found in a multitude of counsel, but do those things first. And then as a people, let's answer the question firmly of who he is. And then listen for his still small voice to tell us who we are. So I'll leave you with this this morning. Who are you really? Who are you? Are you where you're supposed to be? 
Are you doing what God's called you to do? Are your gifts and talents going to waste? He has a plan for you. You can't shine with that brilliance if you don't know who you are. And you can't know who you are if you don't know who he is.